2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish. Finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. So as the world changes and time marches on, some things never change. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He had written to them in his first letter to the Corinthians to encourage them to give. He had left and gone to Macedonia, and he's now preparing to come back. He writes them again, and he, he wants them to give, and he wants them to give generously to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem. These were days of hardship, economic hardship for Palestine. A famine had caused a severe um, economic depression, and resources were very, very scarce in Jerusalem. And Jewish Christians were especially squeezed. So they were rejected by the Jews because they saw the Jewish Christians as having abandoned the, the Jewish faith. And so they received no hope, no help from uh, the Jews. And of course, um, the Romans saw both the Christians and the Jews as, as uh, offensive, and so there was no help from the government or um, from, from Rome, and so they were very much desperate and in need. When Paul hears about their troubles of, uh, of these Christians, in, primarily in Jerusalem, but the surrounding area, he asked the, the believers, the new churches that he had, he had connected with, to, uh, to give generously to, to, their, to their needs. 
And as I mentioned, he had already written to, to the Corinthians, and he had instructed them to, in, in, the first, in his first letter, to begin to take up a systematic offering so that when he came, they would be ready to give and, and to give generously. In this passage, Paul encourages the church not only to excel in the good things of faith and knowledge and earnestness, but to also excel in the act of grace. And he means by that, in the act of generously giving to another. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to give generously and abundantly to the Christians in Jerusalem. But he also wanted the Christians there in, in, in Corinth to give in a way that honored God and testified to the gospel that they had received. Now, I want you to give generously. I want you to be a generous person to the work of the kingdom and to the ministry of Christ. When you give to Central, your, your money doesn't only support the, the local ministry here, but a portion of everything you give, and then um, all of your gifts to, to the special offerings go to, to support missions not only in North America, but literally around the world. Right now, on this Sunday, on this Lord's Day, there are, there are missionaries preaching in places where the gospel has not been heard, and their grocery money, uh, their travel money, the things that they need to live is coming from you and other Southern Baptists who have generously given to the work of the gospel that is happening around the globe. Many of the churches around the globe do not enjoy the, the wealth that God has blessed us with. They are in need, much like the Christians in Jerusalem were in need and the Corinth church was enjoying uh, temporary worldly wealth. And there was an opportunity to bless. So I want us to excel in the act of grace. And as we do, I want us to consider from this passage some things about how we are to give. And you'll, you'll notice that I'm going to spend very little, if any, attention this morning on the logistics of giving. I'm pretty confident that you all are intelligent and can figure out how to do that part. And I'm not going to spend almost, I'm not going to spend any time at all on talking about how much you should give. Paul is very clear in this passage, give according to your means. And so that's different for, for each of you. But I do very much want you to get your heart right when it comes uh, to generosity and giving. And so I want us to consider these three things about the act of grace. Number one, it is a response of love. So when you have when you have received the great love of God through the grace of salvation, your generosity is a response to that. You're not earning it, you're not buying it, but you are responding to it. Secondly, it is a recognition of provision. So we give generously out of the provision that God has given us. And he provides both for our needs, and I'm going to make the case today that God has provided for your generosity as well. And then lastly, a relinquishment of ownership. Who owns the stuff in your home? Who owns the money in your bank account? Now, most of us would maybe the first impulse to say, well, I do. It's my stuff. But I want to make the case today that you, are, um, you may possess those things, but the owner is the Lord. And the question should be, how should we possess well what God has entrusted us with? Let's begin with a response of love. And I see that in the, in the first nine verses of the passage. And so when Paul sets this out and he says, listen, I've been to Macedonia. And, and he gives an example of the Macedonians. And he says, they've given abundantly. And he said, now they gave according to their means and then even beyond their means. And he said, they begged us for the privilege to do it. 
But the reason why I say it is an, a, a command, a, a response of love, is because Paul is very, very clear in this passage that he is not giving a command. So when we think about a response of love, we, we do this not because we are commanded to do it. So, so Paul had uh, first to in, instructed the, the Corinthians in how to give in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So he had already said, listen, you need to be keeping some, some systematic uh, offerings every time you meet so that when I come, you'll have an offering to give. Just hear that passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul writes it this way. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, in other words, this gift to the, to the Jerusalem Christians, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also ought to do. On the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and, and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you uh, accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So just some specifics there. He said, listen, you need to you need, uh, systematically put something aside every time you gather for worship so that when I come, you're not freaking out trying to get up a big gift, but you'll be ready. And so when I come, I can receive the gift and I can take it uh, to Jerusalem. After he gave those instructions to the Corinthians, he then went to Macedonia and he had planned to return to Corinth to collect the offering before going back to Jerusalem. Now, I think the case could be made well that Paul certainly had the authority to command the Christians to give. And I don't think that would have been inappropriate for him to say, I command you. I command you to, to give abundantly and generously. Maybe it would have even been appropriate for him to say, this is how much I think you should give uh, to the Jerusalem Christians. But he makes clear that the offering is to be a free will offering and, and not out of, out of obedience to a command that he has given. So if you'll look with me in the passage back at verse 8, where he says, I say this not as a command. So you don't have to do this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. In other words, he says, I want you to give, not because you're obeying my command, but as a response of love and response to the love that you've received from God. Listen to me carefully in this. Faithfulness in giving is not about obedience as much as it is about a heart issue. Now, I'm not saying here that there is no element of obedience at all. In fact, I think if you're going to be an obedient follower of Jesus, then part of that is going to be giving generously. But, but listen to me carefully. Faithfulness in giving is not first about obedience. And the reason why I say that is if you think about the Pharisees, in the, in the New Testament, they absolutely were obedient in giving. They, they, they tithed on down to the smallest increment, even to their spices. They obediently gave, and yet their heart was not right in giving. So this is not to say that giving has nothing to do with obedience. However, you can legalistically comply with giving and yet not excel in grace. So Paul wants them to excel in grace, not excel in legalistic um, uh, adherence to some rule. So here Paul very much desires the Corinthian church to be very generous, but he desires that they do so not out of compulsion, but out of joy. In other words, he wants their giving to be a response to what their heart is doing, not a, um, an, an obligation to some some command that he's placing on, over them. Thus, to understand what it means to excel in grace, you must first understand this is not a command. So, 
very baseline this morning, when we think about generosity, when we think about giving, you need to hear very clearly, no one's making a command of you today. If you don't want to give this morning, then keep your stuff. Because it would be better for you to give out of a right heart than for you to give out of legalistic and miss the whole issue altogether. It's a response of love. It's not a command, but rather it is a response to the grace that God has given us. Excelling in grace is a response to the grace we've already received um, through Jesus. In the first five verses, Paul gives a testimony to the generosity of the Macedonians who, he said, gave out of in affliction, and he uses, even uses the word in extreme poverty. As a side note, one of the things that I have discovered to be true is that those who have little tend to be more generous than those who have much. I don't know why that is. I've got some antidotal reasons why I think that is, but it's interesting that here when Paul talks about the Macedonians, he says they begged us to have for the favor of giving, and when he describes their giving, he says they did so in, in affliction and extreme poverty. He makes clear that they gave with joy. Now, in verse 3, he says they gave according to their means. So, uh, if you have little, you have little to give. But he says they even gave beyond their means. And, he be and they, in verse 4, he says they beg for the favor of doing so. And Paul explains in verse 9 that what motivated this heart of generosity. Look at what he says. In verse 9, he says, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. And so, in other words, he's connecting that with the generosity of the Macedonians. He says, that's why they gave abundantly, because they understand how abundantly they have received from Jesus. Our response of grace is a testimony to how much grace we have known. Do you hear me? Our response of grace is a, is a reflection of how much grace we have known. And here's the, here's the brutal truth, friends. There is no amount of generosity that we could ever give that would compare to the generosity and grace we have received from Jesus. Can I say that again? There is no amount of generosity that we could ever give that would compare to the generosity and grace that we have already received from Jesus. I mean, just ponder with me for a minute the amazing grace of Jesus. God, who rightly deserved and received all the glory and praise of all of creation, stepped out of glory willfully into the poverty, muck, and destruction of this earth to indwell flesh for people who did not want him to come and rejected him when he did. Jesus, who was without sin, willfully went to the cross and hung on a sinner's cross for sinners like you and me who while we were in our sin joyfully pursued it and could care less about the righteousness of Jesus. That's the abundance of wealth that he forewent so that you and I might know the great wealth of the gospel. How much can you give to compare to that? There's no comparison to that. Knowing the grace of Jesus compels us to excel in grace toward others. It's a response of love. Jesus loved us while we were yet still sinners. 
And through the abundance of his grace, we have come to know salvation. And that produces in us a response of love to others to provide for those in need. A response of love. Number two, a recognition of provision. So look with me in verse 10. Paul says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. This is good for you, is what he's saying. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. And then he says, now, now you need to finish it. Right? You started well. You had good attitude and, and, and good intentions, but you need to finish. And so in verse 11, he says, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you, what you have. For in the readiness is there, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. A couple of things here. Number one, God provides for your needs. In verse 10 through 13, Paul gives some practical instructions and encouragements here. He's encouraging the church to finish what they started and promised to do. This is not unique to the Corinthian church. One of the, one of the brilliances of the Southern Baptist way of supporting missionaries is that uh, collectively as churches, we um, take a portion of, of our offerings and put that together in what we call the cooperative program. And that way when missionaries go off on the mission field, they don't have to come back every couple of years and ask for support because we, we, we take care of them. And so regular salaries and those sort of things, y'all stay on the field, do the work of the gospel, we'll support you from this end. But that's not always how it was. Up in, uh, uh, until we began the cooperative program in the, in the 20s, um, missionaries would have to come and, and they would go around to churches and they would ask churches individually, will you support me? I feel like God's calling me to this particular place in the, in the world. And churches would say, oh, yes, we'll support you. And then off the missionaries would go. And they'd have to come back regularly because churches who promised to give would forget. You know how it happens. An air condition goes out. A leak in the sanctuary or something like that. Well, we've got to tend to that. Or, or maybe the church has just lost interest or forgot the missionaries on the field, but the support would dry up. And so every few years, and this is back in the days when it took months to come home, they'd have to come home, spend a couple of years gathering up support. So they go back. And at Southern Baptist, we realized our missionaries were spending more time trying to get support to do the work, and they were actually doing the work that God had called them to do. That's what's happening here. Paul knows, that, listen, that y'all started well. When I gave the appeal for you to give to the, to the Christians there in Jerusalem, you were all about it and eager and ready, and yet time has passed, and maybe your readiness has waned just a little bit. Now, finish what you promised and what you have started. In verse 12, Paul connects their ability to give with their means and then indicates that their abundance should, should bless Jerusalem while Jerusalem's abundance should bless them. And, of course, the question here is, how does Jerusalem bless the Corinthians? In this equation, the Corinthians have more wealth than the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So, so, so we understand that in, in the way of financial, the Corinthians are going to bless the Jerusalem Christians. That makes sense. But what do the Jerusalem Christians have for the 
Corinthian Christians. Well, they have the gospel. They have the gospel. It was the Christians in Jerusalem who first believed on Jesus. It was the Christians in Jerusalem who first, first sent out missionaries. It was the witness of the Christians in Jerusalem who, who allowed the Corinthians to hear and to receive the gospel. The Corinthians had already been blessed by the abundance of the Jerusalem Christians by hearing the gospel preached, by receiving the gospel and being saved. While the Corinthians have an abundance of worldly wealth, the, Jews, uh, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem have a wealth in spiritual things. And the point that Paul is making is that God provides for our needs. Our greatest need cannot, uh, cannot be purchased by the wealth of this world. Our greatest need is to have our heart made right before God by the saving blood of Jesus. And Paul is making the point, oh dear Corinthians, that great need has already been met. God sent missionaries so that you might hear the gospel preached and you've been saved by the abundance that was flowing out of Jerusalem. Praise God for that. Can I just say to you, dear friends, if you know Jesus today, if every worldly thing you have burns down this afternoon, it's okay. Because everything in this world is falling apart, going to be burned up anyway. But your eternity in heaven, dear friends, who is kept and made and protected by the, by the power of the living God, that's more important than anything we have here. God had graciously and generously provided for the Christians in Corinth by bringing them the witness of the gospel. And it was through the generosity and the abundance of the Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that the Corinthians had heard and received Jesus. God had already abundantly provided for their needs. God provides for your needs, friends. Physically, yes. But spiritually, oh, yes. And I think... We can also make the case here that God also provides, listen to me on this one, God provides for your generosity. Whenever someone preaches or teaches on generosity, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's for the rich folk. <laughs> I can't be generous. I don't have anything to give. Now, remember, he'd already talked about the Macedonians who, who, were, um, who gave out of extreme poverty and difficulty. They've already given generously. So he sort of already debunked that idea that those who don't have much can't give because he's saying, listen, you give according to your means. So we're not comparing dollars to dollars or denarii to denarii. We're comparing heart to heart. Have you given abundantly? And, and I, God provides for your, for your needs, spiritually, physically, but I think he also provides here for your generosity. So in verse 14, um, uh, Paul says that, that that their abundance, that the Corinthians' abundance in worldly things should supply the needs of the Jerusalem church. And I think the point that Paul is making is that God had provided for the Corinthians to provide for the Jerusalem Christians. Do you catch that connection? Paul is saying, listen, your wealth is not just by happenstance. In fact, your wealth is an act of God's provision for the physical needs of Jerusalem, but God has provided for your generosity through your wealth. We tend to think of wealth only in terms of personal advantage. In other words, um, more wealth. When we think about if I had more. So if your, if your income doubled this afternoon, praise God for that. But if your, if your income doubled this afternoon or you won that lottery for $1.28 billion the other day. What would you do with that? Well, we tend to think of, well, I'd buy a bigger or better house. I'd buy a nicer or, 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 or 
truck or car. I'd, I'd, I'd have more time to, to, to do leisure things or buy more toys, whatever that means for you, or spend more time on personal pleasure. So we tend to think more wealth equals more things for me. But Paul wants the Corinthians to see their wealth as part of God's provision, not only for them, but for the whole church. He wants them to think when God gives you more wealth, it is the way God is providing for your generosity that he is also providing for the the needs to be met for other Christians. We must ask the question. Listen to me carefully. We must ask this question. How does God want you to use his provisions? Does God want you to support greater mission, ministry here in Waycross? Does God want you to support greater missions in North America? Does God want you to support greater missions internationally? Paul's point is, if God blesses you with, with worldly wealth, it certainly has some benefit to you personally, but the better, more correct way to think about that is God is blessing you because he's providing for your generosity. And through your generosity, he's providing for other believers. I've already mentioned it about the, the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention supporting missionaries. When you gave your tithe this morning, you may not have realized it, but a portion of that was going to support international missionaries. Right now, there's about 3,548 missionaries around the globe most of which you'll never meet personally. You may never know their names. But they're dependent this morning. As they preach the gospel, some of them in thatch huts, they're dependent upon you this morning. By God's grace, they're not concerned about whether or not there'll be a paycheck coming this week. It will. They're not worried about how they're going to feed their family or when their kids get old enough to go to school, be able to send them off to school because they're going to have a paycheck come this pay period, because you and Southern Baptists around everywhere else have been giving faithfully to support the work of missions globally. Has God not provided wealth for us that we might provide for the witness of the gospel and churches in other parts of the world? And the answer to that is yes. God has met our needs, and God has provided for our generosity. Recognition of provision, and then lastly, a relinquishment of ownership. Verse 14 and 15 are interesting because of what they reference. So Paul writes in verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance might supply your need, that there may be fairness. Fairness. And then Paul quotes Exodus Chapter 16, and he says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. A couple of things here. Number one, you and I must possess what the Lord owns well. When we think about money, we naturally get possessive. We feel dependent on our possessions and we work hard to get and to keep our possessions. We take a little bit of pride when we say, I've worked hard for all that I have. And certainly God has given you freedom to possess things. Now, 
Listen, Scripture is very clear. That the scripture supports the idea of ownership and, and possessing things and, and those sort of things. You, you read all the way throughout Scripture of even like burial plots being purchased and owned and, and, and uh, uh, land being uh, possessed and owned and, and those sort of things. You have agency over what you possess, and you can do with it as you please. That's, you're not... You're not living against a biblical command if you choose to paint your house a certain color or you, you, you choose to buy a certain car. That you, you have agency over what God has given you and in you, and, 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 and most ways you are free to, to use those resources as you please. The testimony of Scripture is not of God forcing you to surrender against your will, your possessions to his service, but, but rather the testimony of Scripture, here's the heart issue, is that you would joyfully give what God has given you for his service in his kingdom. As I have already said, excelling in grace is a matter of the heart. And the core heart issue is who you understand, who owns what you have. If you are the owner of what you have, then you have sole authority and dominion over what you keep, what you give away, and what you do with it. However, if you are the keeper or the manager of another's property, then you desire to possess and use the property as the owner would desire. Here's the difference. If it's your house and you want to kick a hole in the wall, then kick a hole in the wall because it's your house. But if you're staying in a friend's house, you don't even want to scuff it, right? Because you want to treat their property well. You want to return it there. You're, you're thankful for the use of it, but, but you want to manage it and possess it well in the way that they would want you and want to have it possessed. Here's a biblical truth for you. Whether you possess it or not, God owns everything. Somebody say amen. Okay. Whether you believe it or not, God owns everything. Thank you, brother. He owns it all. Yes, the stars in the sky, the earth. He owns your heart, your breath, your mind. But he also owns your things. God owns everything. Who gave you the intellect to do the job that you do? Was it not the God of all creation? Who gave you the physical ability to do the job that you do? Was it not the God who created you? Who provided the opportunities for you to advance in your career? Was that not the living God who made a way for you? God owns everything. And by his grace, God has allowed you to possess many things. The Bible teaches us that we are to receive the gifts of God with thanksgiving. The reason why we receive it with thanksgiving is it's an acknowledgement that it was God who gave it and God who owns it. So if God's given you abundance of wealth, receive it with thanksgiving. Don't receive it with shame. If God is giving you a, a brilliant mind that you're smarter than everybody else in the room, praise God for that. Receive that with thanksgiving. If God's giving you some skill that you can do with your hands that's better than other people, and God, you're using that to advance your career, receive that with thanksgiving. That is a gift of God. Recognize where it came from and receive it with thanksgiving. But we must also learn to possess what God has given us well. In other words, we receive that with thanksgiving not only for our own personal advancement, but we receive it with thanksgiving with the heart to possess it well for the glory of God. 
How can God use your mind for his glory? How can God use the gifts of your hands for his glory? How can God use your ability, your career, your position, your wealth for his glory? Use God's resources that he has allowed you to possess for his glory. Because I am convinced that God provides according to his abundance. Look with me in this last verse. It seems a bit strange, doesn't it? So Paul's been given this instruction about the Macedonians, and he's encouraging the Corinthians to give, and he's talking about, listen, I'm not asking you to be burdened and them to have it easy, but this fairness. And then he, then he quotes Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 is, a, is, is, a, is talking about manna. Now, if you don't know what manna is, I've got to give you a quick Bible history lesson here. The Jews were in Egypt as slaves. God delivered them from the slavery. There's a long period there where they're in the wilderness, and they're totally dependent upon God for everything. And one of the ways that God provided for them to eat was that manna every morning would come down from heaven, bread from heaven, literal bread from heaven. And it would, they would collect on the ground, and the instructions were that the, they, they were to go out and they were to collect enough for their family, however many folks were in their family. And... Um, and then they, they were to use it for that day. They were not allowed to keep it overnight. In fact, it said it would rot if they tried to keep it overnight, except for the day before the Sabbath. And they collected extra portions on the day before the Sabbath. They kept it overnight, and it lasted them all the way through. And here's the unique thing about manna. In Exodus, and this is what Paul is referencing here, didn't matter how much you collected. So John Davis goes out there, and John Davis is really eager. He wants to get a lot of manna, so he collects a bunch He's like, I got some for today. I don't collect as much. And the Bible says at the end of the day, he had none left over, and I had all I needed. Now, the point of that it was to teach that it wasn't about our effort. It was about God's provision. God provided enough. God provided enough. Here's the point that Paul was trying to connect here. God provides according to his abundance. How much manna could God give from heaven? He could have flooded the world with manna. But he gave every morning just enough perfectly for everyone's needs. Manna was how God fed the Jewish people when they left the enslavement of Egypt. They were to follow those specific instructions, and when they did not, it was, did not go well. And here's the point that I think Paul is making. God's provision is enough. His provision is enough to meet your needs. It is enough to satisfy. It is always enough no matter what. God provides for his work and his will directly through the provisions of wealth individually to you and even through the generosity of the other saints. And this is a principle that we need to come back to often. God provides enough. How often when we pray, our prayer life is based on feeling like we don't have enough for whatever it is that we're dealing with. Maybe you don't feel like you have enough provisions in your, in your household right now, but, but oftentimes for me, it's, I see some issue of ministry, and I go, oh, God, I don't know how in the world we're going to do that. We don't have enough. But God always provides enough. Sometimes directly, but sometimes, oftentimes, through the generosity of others. However God provides, it will be Enough. Dear friends, in order to understand that principle, you must relinquish ownership. Possess what you have as God's things. 
Give away what you have as an act of, uh, as an act of joy of giving what God has given for someone else. I have a pastor friend who several years ago, many years ago, got a, a terrible diagnosis of cancer. It was bad. And the, the treatment for him, the best option for treatment for him was to travel across the country. And he was very, very sick. I mean, the cancer was already ravaging his body. And he didn't have the resources. I mean, just, to, just paying for the treatment was going to wreck them financially or challenge them financially. And then all the related cost of traveling and, uh, and, and his wife staying in a hotel and all those sort of things, and being away from home for so long was, was going to be a tremendous burden. But they had, they had made the plans to, to travel across the country and, and they were going to go as cheap and frugal as they could. And so they were going to drive. Him being so sick and uncomfortable, it was going to be pretty difficult for him to be in a car that long. But they were going to drive across the country um, for this treatment. At some point right before they left, uh, a man in the community called him. Wasn't in his church, but, but knew of the pastor and called him and said, I, I'd like to, to meet with you. And so um, the pastor went by to meet with this man. And when he did, the man said, I, I heard you about your cancer diagnosis and I heard that y'all are about to, to go on this trip. And he said, a couple of things. Number one, I'm paying for y'all to fly. You don't need to be driving. I want to pay for y'all to fly. I'll fly you there. I'll fly you home. And if you need to come back in between treatments, I'll take care of that too. He said, secondly, I'm going I'm to take care of your, your hotel for your wife. So she's going to stay somewhere nice and comfortable near the, the, the hospital and you don't have to worry about that. I've got that covered. And third, he handed him a significant amount of just cash. And he said, you're going to need money for meals and a sundries. And so here's some, here's some cash for you to do this, do that with. And I just want to do it as, as a blessing to you. He said, my only request is I don't want anybody to know about it. And I'm telling you because at, at this point in history, God's already called this man home. So uh, I feel free to share this story with you. But he said, I just, I don't want anybody to know about it. So you, you, God, God and, and, he, and he told the pastor this. He said, God has blessed me with abundance of wealth. And I think that abundance of wealth is a gift that I can bless you with. And the pastor received it well with thanksgiving. And God used that. In fact, the good news is God used that, that treatment to, uh, to heal him. And he is well today. I think what was happening when that man gave that generous gift to the pastor was that he recognized, he understood that the wealth that God had given him wasn't singularly or only for his own personal pleasure. But he understood he possessed what God owned. And he wanted to use what God owned for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom that God had provided for him not just to meet his needs, but to meet the needs of others. And he wanted to excel in the act of grace and generosity. Friends, it is good and right for us to excel in faith. It is good and right for us to excel in the knowledge of Scripture and, and growing in the Word of God. It is good and right for us to excel in spiritual maturity. I pray that that is happening in your life. But let us also excel in grace. 
giving generously and abundantly as the Lord provides, but let us excel in grace as a reflection of what God has already done for us through the work of salvation. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.